I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 93. Psalm 93. This psalm is about the Lord who reigns. And there's obviously, if you think about the scriptures and all the various truths that are in there, there's a lot of things, obviously, that are important. uh, Matters that we need to hear, need to understand, that are of great profit to us to believe and to hold tightly to. Um, But this is certainly one of those things to remember that our Lord indeed reigns. And there are all manners of ways that this can be profitable and comforting to us and helpful to us. And so I want us to give our time here to just considering and contemplating our God who reigns on high. And it is something we need to continually remember because we forget, we lose sight of it. God is not one that we see with our physical eyes and we see all kinds of other things with our eyes and Lots of difficult things and hard things, and it's upsetting to us and difficult, and we can forget uh, who our God is. We can forget to remember just who he is and what he says he will do and the fact that he is on high and that he is indeed almighty God. So we want to set our minds upon God himself to remember who he is, that we might be built up in our faith, we might be built up in our confidence in him and who he is, renewed and strengthened by considering our God who is with his people. I just was thinking about when uh, Jehoshaphat was king over Judah and they faced a great enemy and they were distraught by this. It looked to be their undoing and their destruction. And so he called a fast. The people were afraid and uh, in great terror. And uh, the famous words we're aware of, um, this is, is he's praying, he says, Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. The reason that's not a foolish position and place to be is because of who God is. They're looking to God despite their circumstances looking helpless and hopeless. And so we want to, again, remember who it is that we are serving, who our God is. Spurgeon said of this psalm, He said, possibly at the time this sacred ode was written, the nation of Israel was in danger from its enemies, and the hopes of the people of God were encouraged by remembering that the Lord was still king. What sweeter and surer consolation could they desire? That very much could be a situation like Jehoshaphat and the others found themselves in in 2 Chronicles 20. And it applies just as much to today to when we find ourselves in difficulty. So let's read. Psalm 93, together. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. This is a psalm that uh, breaks, I think, fairly nicely into three sections. Uh, I think we see it quite clearly if you're looking at an ESV as I read from. So our outline is going to follow this. So first, we'll see the Lord reigns in majesty. That's verses 1 and 2. Secondly, the Lord reigns in might. 
verses 3 and 4. And then thirdly, the Lord reigns in truth and holiness. So majesty, secondly, might, thirdly, truth and holiness. And yes, that's really two points combined into one for anyone paying close attention. Cheating. Okay, so let's begin with the first point. The Lord reigns in majesty. So verse one starts, the Lord reigns. He rules. He rules as king. It says he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. So the psalm wastes no time, just jumps straight into, uh, into the matter. Yahweh, the Lord, is king. He rules. He reigns. Now, the psalmist, we're not given a name. We don't know who it is. Uh, but the psalmist poetically describes God as having a robe of majesty, being tied together with a belt of strength. Majesty is the idea of a kingly greatness, of authority, dignity, and beauty. The Hebrew word means lifted up. And it can even be used at times to speak of pride. To be proud is to be lifted up, but in obviously a bad way, in a false way that is not fitting. But when this word is applied to God, it speaks of his majesty, that he is indeed the one who is high and lifted up. And if you think of a very well-known passage from Isaiah that reveals God's glory, the, the glory of Yahweh and his robe and his majesty, this is the language that is used. So Isaiah 6, verse 1, Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So that's a description of the Lord's majesty. He is high and lifted up, kingly. He's filled with dignity and beauty. Uh, the psalm also mentions here strength. Strength is as if it is a belt around his majestic robes. The Lord is high and lifted up and the Lord is strong. Now, the Lord's strength is not simply like a man's strength, only a little greater. Uh, so it is not simply if that, you know, if we were able to line up the strongest men to ever live Somehow, beside the Lord, you know, the Lord would just be stronger than them. He would beat them in that, in that uh, contest. Um, the reality is when it comes to the Lord, there is no category for him to compete in. Uh, this, there, there's no one else in his category. His strength is not like the strength of man. It is a far greater thing. There is no one to compete with him. There's no category for him to compete in. He's all his own. His strength is not something that he builds up over time. It is not something that is bestowed on him by another. It is not something that can be taken away or that he can ever lose. It is not derived from some other source. God just simply is strong. This is a reminder as we talk about the Lord and being robed and having a belt and his strength that the, but when we're talking about these, uh, the attributes of God, we're using uh, analogical language, that is analogy. That when we talk of, of the Lord having strength, we have a concept and understanding of what strength is. And so there's a similarity there to God's strength. But at the same time, we have to understand there's also difference between how we would understand strength and the strength we would see around us and the Lord's strength. Uh, likewise, he doesn't literally have a, a, a robe and a, a belt that he wears, but this is communicating to us in poetic language something of the greatness of our God. Again, he is in a different 
he has a different category of strength altogether. It's not just that he has more of it than any man, but it's a different quality altogether. He is the one who simply spoke and the world was created. He is the one who speaks a word and dead sinners come to life. Uh, Paul rightly asked the question in Romans, who can resist his will? And it is a rhetorical question. Nobody can resist his will. Again, his strength is not like anything we find anywhere else. When Nebuchadnezzar had been humiliated, we read from Daniel 4 earlier, he came finally to acknowledge the Most High. Again, that's even an interesting way to describe God, an interesting name for him. Again, that gets at his majesty. He's a lifted up one. He is the most high. There's none higher than him. And as we just read, eventually Nebuchadnezzar confessed that the most high, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nobody can stop him. Nobody can stay his hand, keep it back from doing whatever it is he determines that he will do in his purposes. His majesty, his strength are of a completely different sort than any other. And the psalm continues, it says, Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. Again, creation is an act of this strength of God. He spoke it into being. Job tells us that he hangs the earth on nothing. It's just suspended there. And yet, this tells us uh, that it shall never be moved. So this God that we are speaking of, he spoke all things into existence That's power. He hangs the earth, in a sense, on nothing, and it will never be moved. This is is one who is beyond, as I said, anything else that we can see with our eyes or even picture with our minds. This is the Lord's strength. The world is established. It shall never be moved. Verse 2, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The world has been established by God, but even before that, the Lord was on his throne. Our God is eternal. He is from everlasting. There is never a time when our triune God was not. There was a time when creation was not, but there was, has never been a time when our God was not. His throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. We talked a little about that last week from Psalm 90, that, uh, for about God's eternality. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He, he created time. He existed before it. He exists outside of it. He doesn't experience time and grow old the way that all of us do. There is no thing, no one like the Lord. Nothing compares. He reigns over all in his unique majesty and in his strength, always and forever. Again, I think there's a lot of different ways that this truth um, could be of comfort and could uh, be appropriated by us. But just thinking of a couple of things specifically, in light of all of this, who would not dare to fear the Lord? The one who reigns from forever. The one whose majesty and strength is unlike anything else we could ever see. 
The Bible tells us the beginning of true wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Some recognition of his majesty and just who he is and, and how small we are as creatures by comparison. The thought of God's majesty, the reality of his eternal rule, of his great, divine, unmatched strength, it ought to instill terror in sinners. For it is this majestic and holy Lord who will judge each man and woman. It is his laws that we have violated as sinners. And to violate a king's laws are no small matter. If you lie to an earthly king, you could be executed for treason. At least that's the way it used to be. Maybe still. How much greater is the offense against the eternal king? Sin is transgression of the law, namely God's law. And yet, of course, as we think about God and his majesty and his holiness and the judge of all things, the gospel, the good news that we find in Scripture, also, also reminds us that the eternal king is also gracious. That God is a gracious God. That the Son of God, the second person of the eternal triune God, has come to earth as man. And he has died and he has rose again from the dead so that sinners might be forgiven. The Almighty extends grace to fallen sinners, to those who have violated his laws and trampled upon his goodness and blasphemed his name. There is forgiveness of sins. God calls sinners to confess their sins to God and to look to Christ in faith believing that Jesus did die for sinners, rise from the dead, and that he is able to save. His death has satisfied God's wrath as he has taken the sin of sinners upon himself and satisfied God's holy and just wrath for those sins. And so those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are justified by God as a gift of his grace declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And for all who thus believe in him, reverent awe, or fear of the Lord, continues to be ours. Now this is not the kind of fear that is just sheer terror and panic about it, because of the fact of which we will see in a moment that God's word stands true, and that when The God whose throne was established from of old declares that all who trust in his son will be forgiven and granted eternal life. We can count upon that and bank on that. And so we need not fear the wrath of God. We need not not fear the judgment to come if we are trusting in the son of God. And yet even so, a fear of him and awe of who he is does not just evaporate and disappear. We do not suddenly now speak of God as our buddy. He is still the eternal God who reigns, whose throne is from of old, who is robed in majesty, who has put on strength, a unique strength as his belt. And so there's an appropriate lowering of ourselves before Almighty God, a humility, a quieting of the soul before him. All the things that trouble us, all the things that bother us, all the things that 
don't work out as we wish, the things that aren't as we wish they would be for us, to, to come quietly before the Lord, to calm our souls, our troubles, troubled waters before him. He is reigning and he knows what's best. He is God. He has given you that which he has given you intentionally and on purpose. These are not accidents. We can come to him and call, uh, call out to him and pour out our souls before him and our grievances and our concerns and our cares, make requests of God. This is a wonderful privilege of being his people. But also we can know that however he chooses to answer, he remains good and he still reigns. And it is right for us to fear the Lord. Further, it is right to rejoice in God's good governance in his reigning. His governing is not new. As we just read, it is from of old. He is not new to this. He's not figuring this out on the fly. As if this is his first year in office or something like that. So there is comfort here. There is joy to be had. Gratefulness that though there's so much we don't see, don't understand. Remember, we've been through Ecclesiastes. We're not, I'm not pretending that everything that we experience is wonderful and, and, and there's nothing wrong with the world whatsoever but that we don't understand all the ways of God who reigns. And so we submit ourselves to him and trust that he does. A man by the name of William Plummer wrote in his commentary, he says, if any earthly king be froward or difficult to deal with and oppose himself to the church, we must not be too much afraid of him because his kingdom is but lately begun and is of short continuance. It's the Lord's kingdom that lasts forever. His reign is eternal. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But we worship the eternal God whose throne is established from of old. So the Lord reigns and he reigns in majesty. Secondly, the Lord reigns in might. Obviously his strength has already been mentioned, but now it comes back to the forefront. Verse 3 says, the floods have lifted up. O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. So there's the threat that's being faced. And then comes the comfort. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Verse 3's mention of floods, waters, roaring seas. This could simply be about the waters, and then verse 4, proclaiming that God is mightier than the forces of creation. Yes, creation roars and rages, the floods, etc., and yet God is mightier even over those strong, mighty forces that we see, being as they are his creation, and certainly we affirm that. That is true. He is the creator. His strength is without match. He's over the created order. He is mightier than any wave or tornado or anything. But many note that rainwaters and waves are often used in the Bible as metaphor for the Gentile world alienated from God and raging against him and his people. The rebellion of people. For example, in Isaiah 17, 12, it says, Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. 
And so this is likely what is behind what this psalm is saying with these floods being lifted up and the, the thunder of waters and the, the waves of the sea that are roaring and raging, that the psalmist is likely using this poetically as a metaphor for the raging of the people and the nations around them, to speak of the Lord's enemies and the enemies of his people. Indeed, we know in Scripture and in life by just observation but the nations of the earth do rage against the Lord. Psalm 2 tells us they rage against the Lord and against his anointed Christ. The world rages against the Lord's people. That's why there's persecution in the world. And verse 4 tells us here that mightier than the mightiest of nations, mightier than the strongest of armies, than the most powerful and threatening of kings and politicians, Mightier than all of them, mightier than any force of nature, is the Lord on high, who is mighty. And this is the one whom we worship. This is the one who has redeemed his people. This is the one to whom we owe our ultimate allegiance. And we are reminded, as we consider this psalm, that enemies for the Lord's people, this is nothing new. We can take heart when we see a world of madness that despises the Lord, that despises the laws of nature, creation itself, despises the truth, refuses the gospel, hates all that is righteous. This is nothing new. And as we face these situations and we are disturbed and distraught perhaps by them, we call out and we make our petitions, remember who it is you speak to. It is the one who is on high. It is the one who is almighty. He can, is quite capable of rescuing his people out of every trial. And even if he wills that his servants seal their testimony, and their witness with their own blood. He'll carry them ultimately through that trial safely into his heavenly kingdom. This is Paul's conclusion at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18. He expresses confidence that the Lord will bring him through his trial and into safely into his kingdom. But just a few verses earlier, he tells, he tells Timothy that he's, he's being poured out and that his time is coming to an end. He is confident that he is going to die, that he's going to be put to death. And yet even that, he says, is not the end for him. And the Lord is going to bring me safely through to his heavenly kingdom. And this is what all of his people have to look forward to and a hope that we have that is secure and sure because it is the promise of Almighty God. And how important this is to be convinced of God's reign over all of these things, over all of creation, over all earthly authorities that we might not live our lives in terror and in fear of them, even if they come to crack down on the Lord's people, even if things go that way. We don't know that for sure. We pray for peace and we, we work toward it, etc. But even if that's the case, we have hope and confidence. And we know that one day all enemies will indeed be underneath his feet. We live in light of that day. Again, it's a common phrase we hear all the time about being on the right side of history. People trot that out 
they'll be saying something that is controversial now, and they say we want to be on the right side of history, that in 100 years or whatever, they'll look back on us and say they were the ones that were in the right. It's not altogether a bad concept, but we need to look far enough into the history, into history. So as we think about the Lord, his ruling, mightier than the nations that would rage against him, remember that our right to exist as a church, and that our, our right to gather, to worship together, our right, our mission to proclaim the gospel to one another, to encourage one another with it, and to proclaim the gospel to the lost, our right to worship as a church, to gather in this way. None of this is given to us by earthly authorities. Earthly authorities should rightly recognize this right, but they don't grant it to us. They don't get to tell us what we can say and how it is that we can worship. And this is something that is important, and it's going to continue to be important as our state keeps trying to expand its reach, its demands into every single area of life. This is going to be, continue to be an issue. We've had to deal with it over the last few years, and it's something we need to continue to be clear on. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Where does the authority come from to make disciples? And, and part of that is to teach, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. That involves gospel proclamation and gathering to disciple those who believe. Where does the authority for this come from? All authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus says, has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. <clears throat> we have a God-given mission, a God-given existence, with all authority for that mission, belonging to Christ, who then tells us to go. Matthew Henry in his commentary on this psalm, he says, when singing, you could say reading, this psalm, we forget ourselves if we forget Christ, to whom the Father has given all power, both in heaven and in earth. Christ is the Lord who reigns. It has been given to the eternal Son of God to reign over all, as being the very image and word of God. Colossians 2.10 tells us he is the head of all rule and authority. And he does rule over all of creation on the one hand. And he also rules in a unique, saving, redeeming way over the church, over all who believe. All who have entered the kingdom of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the day is coming where he will unite all things in heaven and on earth. A day when, upon his return, he, all will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
It will be a day when all Christ's enemies will finally and forever be defeated. Judgment will be completed and his church, his people, his redeemed will be raised with glorified bodies to reign forever in the new creation. Our Lord reigns in might and we follow him. As I think about these things and and the Lord reigning and the gospel and eternal life and the new heavens and new earth, let, let people think we're nuts. That's fine. But don't let our message be something that can just be casually dismissed as silly or "Ah, it's not really for me. That's not a valid response. Either we are nuts and completely wrong or this is a a complete monumental significance. Right. Who are we talking about? The God who reigns over all, who is unlike anyone and everything else, who is eternal and who is holy. We have offended him and there is one way to be made right with him, or we will die and perish in our sins forever under the wrath of God in hell. But God is gracious and forgives all in Christ Jesus, granting eternal life to all who believe in the Son, promising that we will be raised eternally to dwell forever with the Lord Jesus, who is returning and will establish forever, consummate his kingdom. And he will judge all enemies placed under his feet. I just say that because it bothers me. You hear people and they they talk about in churches, various places. They just don't hit on, on God's holiness and greatness and majesty. And it's of such importance It's important for the unbelieving world to understand that, to hear that from us. That they might flee to the only solution for their sins, come out from under the wrath of God. It's also important for those of us who believe this and are believing in Christ, have fled from the wrath to come. That we might remember who it is we worship, who we have been reconciled to in Christ. That fear of man might be banished. That we might not fear as we live out our days. That we might not become so distracted by everything and the, the legitimate busyness of our days. But come back to seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. The Lord reigns in might. Thirdly, the Lord reigns in truth and holiness. Verse five turns to the Lord's word. As it starts out, your decrees are very trustworthy. He uses the word decrees. I don't think this is really talking about his divine decrees by which our God has decreed all things whatsoever come to pass. Uh, Most English versions translate this as testimonies. And that is the ordinary translation of this Hebrew word. The laws of the Lord... The testimonies of the Lord are trustworthy. I think it translates, I'm, I, I don't know the mind of the ESV translators, but I think it translates this as decrees here, probably because it's capturing the royal nature of the testimonies. That God's testimonies are, in a sense, royal de- decrees, statements, since he is the one who reigns and is enthr- enthroned on high. God's testimonies, because of who God is, 
They are very trustworthy. Seems like such an understatement in some ways. You say, that guy's a very trustworthy guy. This very, seems very understated for who God is. But what do you say? They're very trustworthy. This speaks to their reliability and truthfulness. His law is absolute. His word on a subject is final. When God speaks, he's not stuttering. He's not yes and no and maybe and I'll take it back and whatever. What he says is true. Again, I referenced William Plummer earlier. He says that testimonies should not here be taken too restrictively, but should be understood to refer to the whole word of God. Promises, his laws, threatenings, and so on. All of what he says is true. What he promises will indeed come to pass. He makes good on everything that he says. He is not like a man who changes or forgets what he said or, or who doesn't follow through or who is unable to follow through. The Lord reigns and he reigns in truth. He is truth. His word is truth. He has revealed himself, God has, through creation, through nature, such that certain truths about God can be understood it ought to be understood just from examining the things that have been made. His eternality and divine nature, Paul says in Romans 1. But of course, we understand Paul also tells us there that sinful man suppresses this truth about God and unrighteousness. But the Lord has also revealed himself still more fully in his word. Not just revealed himself, but revealed the way of salvation. He has revealed to us his plans, in a general way at least, we don't know all details, but in, certainly we say in a general way, he has revealed his plans for the world and the future. He has revealed to us what is right and wrong, revealing his law in greater detail and clarity than can be ascertained through nature. And all of what he says is trustworthy. The commentator says, in considering the first part of verse 5, let pious men never lose sight of God's veracity, his truthfulness, his accuracy, nor doubt the fulfillment of all that he has spoken. His word is truth. So in a world of where we often hear stuff and have no idea what to believe, in a world of propaganda and all manner of disinformation, again, look to the trustworthiness of the Lord's word. Proper reverence and awe of the unchanging and majestic Lord involves receiving his word for what it is. It is truth. It is trustworthy. Look at verse 5 again. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Your house is likely a reference to the Old Testament temple. Holiness is what is fitting for the house of the Lord. Of the whole temple with all of its instruments that were used in worship, all of it was to be set apart from common use and made holy to the Lord for holy use. Moreover, the priests and the Levites, likewise, were to be set apart from the people of Israel for service within the temple. Also, the worshipers. Worshipers were to come in reverence. They were to come in more than just 
ceremonial external cleanness, but seeking true holiness and true righteousness. This is befitting the house of the Lord. Of course, the reason this is befitting the house of the Lord, holiness, is because God himself is holy. He is undefiled and he is unlike anything else, high and lifted up. He is perfect purity and perfect truth. In him is light. There is no darkness at all. And so it follows that his worshipers are to be holy. But holiness is not just an Old Testament matter. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. The ceremonial and ritual cleansing and holiness of the Old Covenant served its own purpose within the Mosaic Covenant, but it also pointed to the need for greater cleansing and for perfect holiness. And this comes, again, only through faith in Christ. It is by faith in Him that a sinner is declared righteous given the righteousness of God and clothed with it as a robe. Again, one who is justified in this way is able to come boldly before the throne of God in prayer because such a person's status has been changed from sinner, unworthy, unable to come, to saint, justified, holy. And so you come then not in your own holiness, but the holiness of another that is gifted to you. This is really what we're meaning when we talk about uh, coming in Jesus' name or praying in Jesus' name. It's invoking Christ and his holiness and righteousness. I come not in my name because I've got something great to offer you, but in Christ's name. The New Testament says that believers are temples of God, 1 Corinthians 3.17 it says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. The Christians are called saints throughout the New Testament. And that really means holy or sacred. And the reason Christians are called saints is because God is the one who calls believers and qualifies us. His people are holy, if you're believing in Christ, his people are holy in our position, in our standing. Again, on the basis of Christ. We have been given the Spirit of God, thereby being God's temple. And of course, we know God takes that person justified by faith, takes them with their new status, with the Spirit indwelling them, and proceeds to sanctify them. That is, you, as a believer, are also being made more holy into your in your very person. You're being conformed into the image of Christ, being made to share in his holiness. There's different ways the scriptures talk about this. And so we are righteous in our standing because of what Christ has done, because we have his righteousness robed around us. And yet we are also in our person, though we still sin and are not righteous in everything we do by any stretch, being made more holy in time, a work that will be completed upon our glorification. And so in light of this, in light of our justification, in light of God's commitment to sanctify and glorify his people, what kind of lives are we to live? But lives of holiness, godliness, as we await the return of our Savior, as we await the consummation of all things. Holiness is the proper and fitting attire of saints 
throughout the ages. Again, Matthew Henry says, nothing better becomes the saints than conformity to God's image and an entire devotedness to his honor. Another writer in linking the two parts of verse five says, sacred and inviolable or unbroken is the word of our king. Sacred and inviolable should be the loyalty of his subjects. And certainly that is the goal. That ought to be our desire, holiness. It's befitting the house of the Lord. So be reminded again of the goodness of holiness. That this is appropriate and right for God's people. And when you find in yourself unholiness, which you're sure to do, Confess your sin to the Lord. Remember the trustworthy saying that is worthy of full acceptance, as Paul said, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul said, of whom I am the foremost. Our efforts at holiness do not add to the work that Christ has accomplished to justify sinners. It is fitting, it is right, it is what we pursue. But it is not adding to or beefing up salvation. Such that we can rejoice when we have fallen again and we realize we are sinful. We can rejoice. We can look again to Christ who died for sinners. And remember, that is the good news. That is why we need him to come. That is why we need salvation to be of God, because we are sinners who do fall short. And so it's a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It is the sick that need a physician. And just a couple of lines later, Paul's not just sitting there depressed and beating himself up again for it. He's being honest, but just a few lines later in 1 Timothy, a couple of verses later, He bursts out into praise. He says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. He is mightier than creation. He is mightier than any enemy that the church might face at any point in its history. His testimonies are sure and trustworthy and holiness is befitting his house forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for this reminder of your greatness. And Father, I'm very painfully aware that even trying to describe it and explain it and expound what your word says about these things, just being very inadequate to do so. Father, you are the infinite and eternal God. And we are finite and we struggle with sin and many different ills and weaknesses. We cannot fully comprehend your greatness. Father, I pray, though, that we would have greater and greater confidence that you are indeed as your word reveals you to be. 
but you do indeed rule over all things. You reign. Father, I pray that every one of us would rest in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. Father, I pray that we would be unashamed of what the scriptures say of your majesty and greatness. That we would live in light of that. That you would chasten us in in fatherly love where we need it as a result of being reminded of your greatness. Where perhaps pride has crept in or our fear of man or whatever else it might be. Father, I pray that You would give us greater confidence in who you are, greater confidence that it is good and right to place our eternal hope on Christ. But even if, even if the world so turned against us that our lives were demanded of us, that we would see that as being an easy decision to make. Father, help us even now to continually lay down our lives daily as we seek to follow after you. I pray that you'd make delighting in you, knowing you, our, our greatest of joys. Father, you've given us so many good things that we ought to receive with thanksgiving and joyfulness. And we do, we thank you. We pray that our ultimate joy and delight would be in you. But we know that at the end of all things, the greatness of the new creation will be unveiled access to you and eternity with you to know you as you are without all of the battles of sin, that all of that will one day be behind us. Father, help us to live in light of that day. Forgive us where we fail to do so. We pray that you would do good work of sanctification in our hearts. And that in all of this, it would be not a drudgery to consider these things, but a delight and a joy. That our joy would be increased and that you would be honored all the more in our own hearts and in our midst as a church. Father, I thank you so much for your kindness and your grace and for your people. Continue to help us and be with us. Be gracious to us. In so many things, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are indeed upon you. So we thank you for your testimonies that are sure and that your word can be trusted. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.